BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Monday, May 21st, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. You can also get an ad-free version of this and every other episode if you pledge to donate uh, $5 or more on our Patreon campaign, which is patreon.com slash inquiringminds. What's your favorite planet? I'm a Mars guy. You're a Mars guy. Huh. Do you think Pluto is a planet? No, it's definitely not a planet. I thought we settled this a long time ago. <laughs> Why are we still arguing about this? Um, well, because I recently spoke to an astrobiologist and the principal investigator of the New Horizons mission to Pluto, and they certainly call it a planet. Well, well I mean, it's a dwarf planet. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, that was the one thing that kind of surprised me, too, when I was reading their book. So uh, they have written a book about uh, this mission to Pluto, the first time that we got pictures back from Pluto. Do you remember this when this happened? I totally remember this. New Horizons was super exciting. I actually was at my computer waiting to see some of the first images released. And then when the heart image showed up a few <laughs> days later of the it's basically like nitrogen ice right in this sort of heart shape when you sort of tilt the uh, dwarf planet at a certain angle uh i thought that was delightful yeah so i think a lot of people like you were really captivated by this mission and this book now tells a story of it and one of the things i found really compelling about this book is it, is it kind of reads like a spy thriller because there are so many things that go wrong. I mean, it really, I mean, I can't wait for this movie to come out because, you know, David Grinspoon starts out, uh, he's, he's, you know, kind of narrating a lot of conversations that he had with Alan Stern. And he starts out by basically taking us to a point like 11 days before the the, the mission was supposed to, you know, get its payoff, um, or maybe even less than that. And all of a sudden, they lose connection with the spacecraft. <laughs> And that's where the book starts. And it just tracks the most amazing journey that that the scientists had to go through in order to get those pictures to us that have essentially captivated people from all over the world. And change our fundamental understanding of how Pluto formed, like the composition of the planet, uh, its relationship to other rocky bodies in that in that distant part of our solar system. So it had massive implications for for science work. But I imagine given the fact that it's not always 
sexy to send things to outer edges of the of our solar system they probably had a tough fight on their hands they did but it's also kind of like i mean do you think that to me in some ways this was the last kind of frontier that every child knows about right like the rest of the stuff that we're going to learn about space, maybe maybe future generations of children will be much savvier and will have a greater understanding of how space works. But I feel like, in, you know, in my lifetime, we got to Pluto. That that seems pretty cool. Yeah. Too bad Neptune is already always left out in the cold. <laughs> well, there's always another another spacecraft. So I actually interviewed Alan and David at the Cal Academy of Sciences just before they were about to go on stage. So you might hear uh, a couple of doors opening and a couple of weird clicks. And, and that's because we were in this awesome science museum. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Alan Stern and David Grinspoon. Today's episode was brought to you by Udemy, the largest marketplace for online learning. Whether you want to learn something new or just sharpen your skills, Udemy has an extensive library of over 65,000 courses taught by expert instructors. Ever find yourself thinking, I wish I could do that? With Udemy, you can. From web development to digital marketing to Japanese cooking courses, Udemy has something for everyone. While other online learning companies charge hundreds of dollars per class, Udemy courses start at just $11.99. Plus, each course comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee for risk-free learning. Every day, students around the world choose Udemy to discover new passions, expand their skills, and even change careers. Improve your life through learning. Download the Udemy app to learn anytime, anywhere, or visit ude.my slash inquiring today. That's www.ude.my slash inquiring. Alan Stern, David Grinspoon, welcome to Inquiring Minds. It's great to be here. So Alan, I want to start with you and ask you about your kind of history in terms of your, your interest in space exploration. It seems like this is not something that was a passing fancy, you know, when you turned 18, <laughs> that it was something that was embedded in your childhood. Oh, that's absolutely right. It's, uh, it was something that swept me off my feet when I was a little kid. And it just seemed like uh, the 21st century was upon us in the middle of the 20th century. It's all I want to be a part of. <laughs> um, and so there was a time uh, when you were pretty young uh, that the a mission to Pluto seemed like a possibility because of a, of a kind of serendipitous lining up of the planets. So tell us a little bit about what the theory there was in terms of how to get spacecraft to Pluto. Yeah. Well, that was long before I was interested in it. But uh, in the early, late 60s and early 70s, NASA realized that there was this chance alignment of the planets, the giant planets in particular, that only occurs about every 180 years. And it allows you to hop from one to the next, to the next, to the next. Um, and instead of having to send separate missions with separate cost, uh, you could have one mission that visited all the giant planets and Pluto and be much more cost effective about it. And, uh, uh, Ultimately, that was called Voyager, and it was launched in the late 1970s. Uh, two spacecraft, Voyagers 1 and 2, and they both went to Jupiter and Saturn, and then Voyager 2 went on to explore Uranus and Neptune. Pluto didn't get explored because of a decision made about how to explore the Saturn system with Voyager 1 that basically meant a more detailed look at the moons of Saturn in exchange for not going to Pluto. 
And, you know, this was this was a, a, a sort of a once in a 175 year, so like double lifetime opportunity because that kind of lining up the planets doesn't happen very often. Is that right? That's absolutely right. And and they call it the grand tour. <laughs> and so why why is it important for the planets to line up? How does that sort of physically help the spaceships go from one to another? Um, Do we it, call them spaceships? Sure. Is that, okay. Or spacecraft. Spacecraft. Okay. Right. right. Spaceships are a little more sci-fi. Okay. But... Um, uh, the, when they're all on the same side of the sun and uh, lined up properly, then um, uh, it's possible to use each to target the next using the gravity of, the, of one planet to reach the next one out and so forth and so on. And uh, that's, that's just a cost savings because otherwise you would send multiple spacecraft to get the same job that you could do on Grand Tour with only one or two. And so why did they make the decision not to go to Pluto? What was, the, what was so appealing about that moon? Well, there were a couple of things. First of all, the spacecraft really wasn't built uh, to fly as long as it would take to go to Pluto. And even though that was healthy and, and it was capable of going to Pluto, it was a bit of a risk. And uh, so it was a bit of a bird in the hand versus a bird in the bush decision. You know what I'm saying? They were almost upon uh, reaching Saturn. And Saturn has a planet-sized moon named Titan, which has since been explored by the Cassini orbiter. And we know it has a uh, hydrological cycle and lakes and uh, all kinds of interesting atmosphere liquid phenomena going on the surface. At the time, they didn't know what kind of world Titan was, but they knew that it was a high priority. And because of when they were arriving, they could either fly close to Titan right then and there uh, and explore it or aim for the the point in space near Saturn, it would take you to Pluto, uh, which would preclude you from studying Titan. And I think they made the right decision. Uh, I, I, they clearly made the right scientific choice. Uh, they also made the right decision because they opened up the op opportunity for us to later fly New Horizons. <laughs> so... What, so I just I want to just backtrack a tiny bit and ask about this. You know, why were there two Voyagers? Why not just have? I mean, if you're spending all this money building a spacecraft, I mean, why why double it? Well, uh, that that really comes from the the beginnings of space exploration when spacecraft and rockets were not reliable, and you know, uh, uh, Mariner one and two were launched to Venus, and Mariner one ended up uh, what we call an oceanographic mission. <laughs> Mariner 3 and 4 were launched to Mars, and something similar happened. Only Mariner 4 made it. And so uh, in, in the first reconnaissance of the planets, it was typical to fly two on any given mission, whether they were called Pioneers or Voyagers or Mariners. It was rare. I believe there was only one instance where they flew one instead of two. Uh, and uh, that's why there were two Voyagers. It was a long and, and uh, arduous journey. And for all the money that was spent to build them and to build their launch vehicles, it, uh, in those days, if you didn't send two, your chance of getting even one there uh, was, uh, was low. So what changed? I mean, you know, I don't, I don't think they sent two curiosities, right? Or did they? Am I wrong? Am I right? <laughs> no, but we did send um, uh, two of the previous Mars rovers, hmm. Spirit and Opportunity, for similar reasons. Okay, Okay, so they didn't necessarily have separate jobs. It was more that, you know... They went to different places, and in this case, the, of Spirit and Opportunity, they both worked. So uh, we can double your pleasure, double your fun, double your science, all that stuff. But the reason they sent two was ultimately because they were concerned that it was 
complicated enough that uh, one might not make it. So now we're in this place where the Voyager missions are over. What happens next? Well, at the end of Voyager, there was this moment where it seemed like maybe that was going to be the end of, of an era of new exploration. Because, you know, there's something about a first flyby where you've, you're going to a planet you've never been to before. Nobody's ever sent anything to before. And, and so these, these worlds, these planets and moons um, go from just being these dots um, to suddenly in, in the course of a few days, really a few hours, becoming, uh, you know, huge in our pictures and detailed and, and, and these worlds that we get to know. It's, it's a really exciting moment of, of revelation and exploration. And we've, we've had other interesting and valuable and exciting missions of exploration in the solar system, but there's nothing like that first glimpse of a new planet, the first flyby. That was just so exciting, the Voyager encounters. And then in 1989 with Neptune, um, it seemed like uh, maybe it was going to be over. And especially for scientists of a certain generation who, uh, you know, Alan Stern and, and his colleagues who were young then and felt like they had just barely, you know, almost been professionals in time for Voyager, but just missed out uh, and were just starting their careers, uh, there was the sense of, wait a minute, what, what are we going to do? What's next? What's left? And that was where the idea of a Pluto mission started to crystallize. And Alan and uh, some of these other young scientists, uh, you know, they were at first, uh, it, it was a very unlikely idea. They were the Pluto underground, which is what people started calling them. And then they started calling themselves because it was almost like this rebel alliance bucking the establishment because the idea of a Pluto mission was not embraced right away by the powers that be. Uh, people thought it was too far away, maybe not worth the time and effort, uh, not interesting enough scientifically, but... Uh, there was a small determined band that felt like it was really important to keep going and explore a new place. So it was very much in the aftermath of Voyager and the sense, uh, what's our generation going to do? What's our new farther target that we can reach? Uh, that was the origin of, uh, of the idea of going to Pluto. It wasn't New Horizons yet. It was just the idea, let's try to get a mission to Pluto. So I'd like to say, you know, Alan became the, the principal investigator of New Horizons, but before that, he was he was the prime instigator of this <laughs> this unruly band of of uh, scientists, that, that young scientists that wouldn't take no for an answer when they were told that uh, it wasn't a good idea to go to Pluto. They they knew it was, and they just had to figure out how to work the system. And in the process of them figuring out how to work the system, we tell the story in Chasing New Horizons, so the reader follows along and and learns how that system works. And that's one thing I love about the story because a lot of people don't know. Um, really how it, how it works. They just think, oh, NASA has this idea and they send a mission. But there's a long backstory there and, and a lot of intrigue and um, drama that uh, we wanted to reveal to people what, what happens when you go from the dream to the actual mission. If I can add a little something, everything David just said is correct uh, and, uh, and what happened. Uh, and in, our, in, our, uh, in the previous generation of planetary scientists, those who made uh, who really opened the solar system to exploration, the first missions to each planet were the most prized missions because uh, the discoveries were so large simply by dint of being close and seeing things in detail. And so uh, it, there was a lot of competition to be on the first mission to Mars, the first mission to Venus, the first mission to Jupiter, and so forth and so on. And uh, it, was, it was clear for us who came along too late for any of that, that Pluto was kind of the last train to Clarksville. Mm. But there was more than just uh, the exploration ethic. Uh, 
We also knew by the late 1980s that Pluto was this really different kind of thing. It was not a terrestrial planet like the four rocky planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, and not uh, a gas giant. And and yet, a, you know, a, a large scale, a real world, and it already had a satellite, and it was known to be a binary planet, and we knew it had an atmosphere, and we knew it had surface markings, and it was, that it was colored red like the planet Mars. Uh, and we had pretty good evidence that the atmosphere changed drastically with time and that the surface did too. And uh, it, it, it seemed that the science was very compelling, that this would have a lot to teach us. Um, unfortunately, at the time, um, it wasn't compelling enough because Pluto looked like kind of a footnote to the architecture of the solar system. There were giant planets and their satellites, and there were terrestrial planets, and some of them had satellites and asteroids and comets and Pluto, which seemed to be its own thing, until the 1990s when the context for Pluto was discovered, called the Kuiper Belt, or the third zone of our solar system. It's teeming with comets and these funny things called planetesimals out of which the planets are made, but also is dotted with more small planets that are like Pluto. About a dozen have now been discovered. And when we realized that was a whole new class of planet and that it was more populous than the giant gas giants and the terrestrial planets combined, it was like getting hit over the head with a baseball bat. You know, wow, we didn't even know all this time we were exploring the closer planets that there was a third class and that Pluto is the archetype for that class. And so it became more and more scientifically compelling. And, uh, and in the science world, uh, science, uh, science compellingness um, is much more important than the exploration value. But you still have the problem in the science world of funding and, you know, funding cycles, as we know, especially at NASA, change with the presidents, right? And and the political climate has a big deal of it. And, and you're talking about, I mean, did you know when you started on, like, what would you say you started on this project in the late 1980s, 1989? I mean, did you know that it would take that long and that, you know, or that it was even you know, that like, I mean, how do you even deal with the uncertainty of, of whether you're going to have funding four years from now, let alone 35 years from now? You know, now? we really didn't think it out that well. Uh, I think you're giving us more credit than we deserve. We knew that Pluto was scientifically compelling as a place of its own. We didn't yet know the context that would drive it to the top of the list. We suspected that those things would be discovered. Uh, but, you know, there's a difference between theory and actual observation. And the Kuiper Belt had not been discovered. It was only conjectured. Uh, uh, but uh, th the key thing for us was to take the first step, was let's see if we can have NASA study how to do this and determine what it would cost and uh, uh, what it would take to do it. And we didn't really think much past that because we wanted to see what the results of the study would be. When NASA agreed very easily the study, as Chasing New Horizons describes. You know, I just walked into a guy's office who was in charge of this stuff. And uh, in 15 minutes, I was out the door with a promise to do a study. And I was a little bowled over that that, that, that seemed too easy. It just worked and on the first try. And then he, he did come through with what he said. And then we did the study, and it looked like a very straightforward mission to go and build and fly. And then the fun began. Because <laughs> then there was one reversal after the other, 
after the other and two steps forward and one step backwards and changes in administration and changes in fashion. We should fly giant missions. We should fly, you know, tiny missions. We should fly this and that. And uh, we ended up kind of in a, a bit of a maze that took a dozen years to exit before we figured out the right combination to unlock the lock to get the funding. And is that like in that time period, I mean, what what do you do? Do you keep running more studies? Do you keep, you know, trying different plans well, and selling as, them? As Ch- Chasing New Horizons describes, of course, we didn't have a bird's eye view. We were always kind of in the moment and, um, and uh, responding to NASA's latest wishes. And NASA's uh, interests change several times. And each time we'd go perform a new study along those lines. Uh, and the way that David's written the story, which is factually correct, um, it gallops along, but you see a group of people who are uh, trying to reach a goal and, um, and really have to show a lot of persistence and a lot of ingenuity because, as I said, the, the times and the fashions kept changing. We're trying to pursue the same goal under varying conditions over and over again. And uh, uh, we really couldn't see our way through to what would work for quite a quite a long time and, and the rules kept changing and the and the players kept changing that they had to interact with so uh, it's not just that they had to figure out how the system worked uh you know every time they'd figure it out the, the rules would change on them and uh as you said it, you know it was long enough so that it was more than one presidential administration i mean spaceflight is like that it tends to be long-term projects and then you have to deal with the fact that our government changes every you know four years at least and then you know but uh this project in particular when you're talking about something that's going to take you a decade to get across the solar system and it took well over a decade to get it approved and started you're dealing with multiple changes in government and changes in nasa administrators and changes in how missions are chosen you know, it's a long enough time so that uh, it was not just a question of figuring out the system. It was a question of having to move with the times and be very nimble. And there were a number of times when um, it turned out that what the project really needed was public support. You know, it wasn't enough just to uh, get things through NASA. Uh, things got canceled by success, two different successive presidential administrations canceled the mission. And there were a couple of key moments when what saved it was massive letter writing campaigns from the public. People love Pluto and people did not want to see this mission canceled. And and literally wheelbarrows full of 10,000 letters would show up at NASA headquarters and they'd be inundated with people saying, don't cancel the Pluto and, mission. We want to see it. To be fair, we engineered that. Uh, right. You know, We knew that it was very popular and we knew that that was a tool in our toolkit that um, uh, missions to, to other places didn't have. There was some attraction in the public, um, uh, not for Pluto as a world so much as Pluto as an idea, as an outpost on a frontier and an unchecked box and to complete the reconnaissance of the solar system. And, uh, and we used that uh, tactically to our advantage a number of times, and, and it really worked, it made a difference. And interestingly enough, when we finally got to Pluto in 2015, the public outpouring a generation later was just stupendous. And of course, most of the people who were interested either weren't born when we were trying to first get a mission to Pluto or they were too young to write letters. 
right? Yeah. No, I mean, I have to say, so at the same time as I was reading Chasing New Horizons, I've been reading a trilogy of spy novels based on a character called the Red Sparrow. And it's this like, you know, it's about Russian spy who's, anyway, they won't even get into the details. But there were a lot of parallels. Really? <laughs> yeah. And there were a lot of times when I'd go from one to the other and just be equally absorbed wow. because the story is so compelling and it has so many of these twists and turns. Like, you know how it's going to end ultimately. And I know how the spy novel is going to end ultimately, but that doesn't matter. You know, what's interesting is the story. Yeah. From a storytelling perspective, that was one of the interesting challenges of this is, um, you know, because all the drama in the story is, you know, is it going to work? Will they get a mission? Will it function correctly, make it all the way across the solar system? Will they actually get to Pluto? And yet on the cover of the book, there's a picture of Pluto that could only be taken if the mission works. So you know how the story ends. And yet, I think we've succeeded in telling it in such a way that the drama still kind of has you on the edge of your seat. Because, you know, it's like Apollo 13. You see that movie and you know that they saved him. And yet when you're watching it, you get really nervous because it seems like impossible that they'll get out of this jam. And I think this is the same kind of story where there's a lot of moments of uh, peril and seeming defeat and seeming dead ends. And you're kind of wondering how they're going to get out of this situation. And, th and then they do. Well, and I think that that's, you know, it's it's true of a lot of space exploration or, or sort of anything that goes on in NASA. I think a lot of us just have this idea of there are people there that are like hyper competent. And I'm not saying that you're, there was any kind of incompetence here, but you forget about all the sort of conditions and situations that change on a day to day basis. Um, like even just how you you open the book with this story of like the computer's rebooting itself. And you didn't know that in the moment. Yeah. That, like, yeah. Three days before beginning Pluto flyby, the worst, the, the worst thing you could imagine happened. I mean, what, is it, what do they call it? Like that circle of death, like, you know, on you know, a Microsoft laptop where you see like, is that, that's sort of what was happening. And oh yeah, the spinning, had, spinning, the spinning wheel, wheel of, death. of death, right? It was kind of like that. I mean, cause first, first it was like the blank screen. Like there's no spacecraft. So you don't know. The was other, there a other comet? Other was there the something? It's, it's yeah. gone. Well, and, and, and then that happened. We were talking to the spacecraft. We're receiving signals, and they're all looking fine. And this, it's doing its thing, and everything's normal. And it's been happening this way for nine years. And this morning, we've been talking to it continuously. And then all of a sudden, it just goes and goes offline like that. And then, so there's this moment of like, oh my god, is it gone? Is that it? Is it blown up? Are we never going to hear from it again? And then they fortunately reestablish contact but then they find out that the spacecraft is in a bad way and it is like the spinning circle of death um you know its software is messed up and there are all these files that have been meticulously loaded for months that tell it exactly what to do during the Pluto flyby you know and it's very precise choreography that happens by itself during that time it's too far away for you to control it in real time and it needs all the software in order to do that it's barreling in on Pluto a million miles a day. They're almost there and they realize that that software is not on the spacecraft. And there's a very limited amount of time where they have to rewrite this code, test it, and communicate with the spacecraft. And, you know, meanwhile, it's, it's so far away. It takes four and a half hours to send a message and get it back. So nine hours to send something and find out if it worked. So they're there around the clock. And it was this crazy, crazy time. Uh, it was it was on the 4th of July that this this anomaly happened. So Alan says, you know, this is our fireworks, but not, not the one that we wanted. <laughs> and because it was on that holiday, uh, people were showing up in their bathing suits and flip flops from their grilling, you know, from their barbecues and there for days like that, sleeping on desks. And, you know, like uh, it, it was a, uh, really an intense effort where the team had to, you know, 
was tested in every way and had to, you know, all their training uh, for something like that. They had to execute perfectly with no time to spare. And literally within a few hours of, of when the flyby had to start, you know, and there was no delaying it. It was on its way to Pluto. Within a few hours, uh, they got it working again. And it, you know, the flyby went flawlessly, but it came so close to just being completely lost. It was. It yeah, was, it's, it's like it's like my worst nightmare where you're like on a plane to go give a talk somewhere and like you're, you know, you just realize that all the files you've been working on have been didn't didn't make it into your Dropbox folder or whatever. And yeah. now you have to like redo the whole thing from sure. scratch. Another analogy might be um, that, um, you know, you might imagine Apollo 13 was all about just forget the moon landing, save the crew, get them back to the Earth alive. Right. Imagine if the all that went on in Apollo 13 was actually to rescue the ability to land on the moon and do the exploration they had intended. That's what we were faced with. After this literally 26-year effort uh, to to convince the system that Pluto was an important exploration target, to raise the money, to overcome cancellations, to go through a competition where we, the underdog team, won, to race against time, to build it in time for a Jupiter gravity assist launch window, and under uh, uh, very difficult budget circumstances the whole way through. And then an epic journey across the entirety of the solar system. We are on Pluto's doorstep, and the spacecraft goes offline with three days to go. It's like, it was it was somewhere between, am I living in a Hollywood script, <laughs> or am I just a shit magnet? <laughs> <laughs> so... All right, so let's peel back just a little bit and talk about sort of how you got there and and sort of you know how do you even how do you even work through that? In my head, it's hard for me to conceive of how like you know that you're eventually going to be in front of Pluto, but it's going to be years from now, and you know so the software that you write today could be much improved years from now, and so like you know, how does that even sort of logically work in terms of designing a spacecraft that you know you'll have you know, a completely different, potentially you'll be uploading completely different software years from now. Well, there's, there's a, a saying I like a lot, and I didn't invent it, of course, but better is the enemy of good enough, right? Uh, uh, and uh, we practice that a lot in the design of New Horizons, but also in the design of the flyby. Um, what we knew about Pluto was so little that I used to joke that you could fit it all on a single sheet of paper yeah. before the flyby. And what we could accomplish with that, that spacecraft and those instruments um, was going to turn it into volumes and volumes of information. And yes, you could do even better if you keep improving it all the time. But you take the risk then of um, good intentions, but, but potentially embedding some problems, uh, some traps in software or in uh, any part of the flyby plan. So instead, we took the approach that we want to accomplish all the objectives as well as we can, but in a way that we make sure is bulletproof in terms of being thoroughly tested so it will work. There's a certain conservatism that is necessary when you're operating this way. We have one machine. You can't fix it if something goes wrong. You can't send a repairman. Um, You know, and so reliability becomes, you know, this really very important principle. So a lot of the components, all the, all the major components on the spacecraft are, are redundant. You know, there's backup systems for everything. 
and um, the amount of testing and rehearsing and simulating um, is is really extreme because it's all about preventing anything from going wrong when you need it to work. It's one shot, one spacecraft. Um, so yeah, rather than adding on too many bells and whistles and trying to use the latest, slickest procedures, you just want something that's going to really, really work and accomplish the goals that you have. And, you know, when, especially when, when you're reading Chasing New Horizons or when I was learning the story and, and writing it with Alan, you know, you really become aware of all the things that can go wrong and that they're guarding against. And it's even though there was this one moment of crisis we, we described to you, it's amazing there weren't more. I mean, the more you learn about all the possible disasters they had to guard against, the more it seems miraculous that the darn thing worked and it worked flawlessly. I mean, and that's that's something that like I feel this is why, you know, a person like you, Alan, it's a kind of a, a maverick thing to do in science because you are putting, you know, your entire sort of legacy, your career onto, you know, something that there's there are 10,000 reasons why it might go wrong. And you probably won't have a do over or you might, but, you know, one do over maybe. Right. So how does that how do you work through all of that kind of uncertainty and you know, stuff and still maintain the motivation? Well, nothing ventured, nothing gained. You have to take risks. And certainly space flight, it's not unique, but it's certainly exemplary of, of a profession where people take risks. Uh, and and uh, usually those risks pay off. Uh, but sometimes they go bad in spectacular ways. Uh, and, uh, and we knew what we were getting into. Um, at the beginning, uh, going back to something we talked about earlier, um, being on a first mission to a new planet is a really prized experience, and not just for scientists, for the engineers and for the flight controllers and for everybody involved in this project. This was something really special. Nothing like it had happened in a generation. Nothing like it was planned to ever happen again. It was uh, um, the, the, during the time we were recruiting the team, uh, all the best people wanted to be on it, and we had the pick of the litter. And we were very careful to choose uh, people who were really committed to staying with it for the, the entire period, 15 years, people who had uh, the, the most talent, the most diligence, the most attention to detail. And the team that we picked was uh, not just the A team or the A plus team. It was really a dream team and, uh, and a lot of really smart people. And we also picked um, people who meshed well together. Uh, there were occasional issues, you know, like you have on any big project. But for the most part, it was a team that was really vested in the success of the project. And uh, people were looking out for each other and a lot of constructive criticism and helping us, you know, kind of uh, anticipate uh, uh, what might go wrong so that we could protect against it or test for those situations. And people worked nights and weekends out of uh, simply their desire to be a part of something larger than life, the first mission to the farthest planet. And as as a outside observer and, and narrator, I would just echo that the teamwork was phenomenal. I've um, been part of a lot of spacecraft teams, and I've observed a lot of others. You know, just being in this community and being uh, a part of space space exploration and a fan of space exploration. And the New Horizons team um, is really a tight knit well 
well-oiled machine. They, they, they work together really well. I think maybe some of it, you know, it's a relatively small team compared to Voyager um, and other big space missions that came before, um, just because it's a smaller, low-budget, relatively lower-budget uh, project. And um, so it's a community of people that, that knew each other and worked well together. And there were a lot of times, there were some times when morale was tested. Um, and that was interesting to observe, but... Um, but never really wavered. And, but I will also say it's a testament to, to Alan as a manager because he had various things he would do over, he's a long project that um, I think helped to build morale. He, uh, Alan um, celebrates anniversaries and you know marks special occasions like when um, there was a moment when New Horizons passed the orbit of Neptune, which was the last planet that Voyager had had visited on its way out to Pluto. And it happened to um, also be on the, uh, what was it, 30 years? 25th anniversary. The 25th anniversary of uh, Voyager's Neptune encounter. To the day, New Horizons was passing Neptune's orbit. And uh, that didn't go unnoticed. There was a celebration and people marked the occasion and thought about the history and talked about the the um, journey to come. And there were other times when, um, you know, the, the team had some close calls and Alan would, would uh, do these kind of um, slightly goofy but, but endearing um, celebratory things. Like there were, I'll just tell you one story. Um, the, there was a close call with New Horizons shortly after it was in space where um, one of the instruments, with a telescope, you never point it at the sun. And there's an instrument on board New Horizons uh, that was accidentally briefly pointed at the sun. And it could have been very dangerous, could have knocked out some detectors and you know, done great damage. It didn't. It was okay. And then they figured out what had gone wrong with the algorithm, so that would never happen again. But it was a close call. And one of the guys at, at Mission Control told Alan, uh, boy, you know, that was close. Uh, you know, we better knock on wood. Alan looks around the control room there at Applied Physics Lab in Maryland and realizes that everything is modern and synthetic and there's no wood at all in the room. So what does he do? He goes back to Colorado and he gets some cutting boards and cuts them up into little pieces and puts a little plaque uh, on each one saying, uh, this is, you know, for the rest of the New Horizons mission, this is your piece of wood. Put this on your desk and whenever you need to knock, here's, you can knock on wood. And he gave one to every flight controller on New Horizons and put them in that control room and, and and they kept him on their desk through the rest of the missions you know so that's just kind of a silly example but he would just um do these sort of um i don't even know if you meant him as team building uh exercises you might have just been trying to be funny but but uh i think that things like that over time uh did cement the team and, and helped morale which is really important on, on an endeavor that lasts this long so let's go to that moment that the payoff moment when we get to pluto um, and, and tell me what, what was that like in the room? I mean, we've seen the beautiful pictures and, and for our listeners, we'll be, we'll be, um, in our show notes, you'll be able to see some of these pictures and just to remind you, um, Alan and David's book is called Chasing New Horizons Inside the Epic First Mission to Pluto. Um, so take us there. What was it like? Well, uh, it, it was, uh, I think for all of us, uh, a day we will never forget. Uh, because everything did work very well. But this is a very small flight team. Um, we talked about Voyager earlier. The Voyager team did a spectacularly good job, but uh, they were kind of a big city compared to New Horizons. They had 450 people on the flight team during the 70s and 80s to carry that out. We had uh, 
you know, and we had the advantage of um, a lot better computers than they had, but we also had designed it to be uh, a less expensive mission. And so there were about 50 faces on New Horizons during the flight project. Uh, and uh, we each had to carry a lot more responsibility than uh, 450 people. We were doing basically the same work. So you might imagine that's about 10 to 1 ratio. Each person is uh, carrying 10 times the responsibility in some some respect. And uh, when it worked, it, it was it was it was very powerful on three different levels. One was simply seeing this point of light that we had been after suddenly broadcast onto a big screen as a planet before our very eyes. And it was scientifically spectacular. And then there was the realization that, my God, it actually all worked, <laughs> right? There are lots of ways it could have gone badly from horribly to simply an A minus. We did something like 463 scientific observations. Not a single one failed to collect wow. the data that it expected. Uh, you know, we couldn't predict the discoveries, but Pluto was centered in every frame or the satellites were centered in every frame and, and the, uh, every instrument worked perfectly. And we, it really completely worked. And just as much as you simulate and you practice and you analyze, you, you worry about the unknown unknowns. And to see that it actually all worked was almost overwhelming. Um, and then finally, the public outpouring, being in the middle of what became uh, uh, a sensational media event, and the accolades that NASA and the United States and our team were getting, uh, was uh, th this combination of seeing the planet and how spectacular it was, and knowing that we had completely, not partially, not barely, but completely succeeded. We had an A in everything. And to see the public so engaged and to see hundreds of media and hear that there were billions, literally billions of web hits and that it was everywhere in the news and in uh, social media uh, was a, 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 an unbelievable cocktail of, uh, of uh, it, it generated a cocktail of emotions in, in our team that uh, is it, very hard to describe. It was it was really something being there for the flyby the the crowds there were massive crowds gathered there uh, just you know the general public that was interested but also you know there were celebrities and politicians and um, you know and the, and the team the science team and the engineering team they were rock stars then you know people were just like uh, you know when they come out from the you know be back when they'd walk through the crowds because they're on their way somewhere they'd be mobbed by people wanting autographs which is really cool for these scientists you know who aren't used to that and who had toiled away they deserved it they are rock stars and um there was some real um it was very emotional there was some real anxiety you know the team that they didn't know it was going to work um and because of the time delay there was a period of time where we all knew that new horizons had made its closest approach to Pluto already, but didn't know if it had worked yet. You're waiting for the the, the phone home signal, and um, that all happened in real time in front of the crowds. You know, the mission control. This this woman, Alice Bowman, who you'll get to know if 
you read Chasing New Horizons, who was the mission operations manager, the, the head of mission control. She's there at a console and all the, uh, you know, the other heads of the different engineering teams are reporting in and she's waiting for the signal and then they find out that the spacecraft is alive and there's a huge cheer. And then they find out that, um, you know, this system's healthy, that system's healthy. There's a huge cheer. And then the really huge cheer is they find out that the, the data memories are full, meaning they got what they they came for and then at the you know the end of this and everybody's watching you know and watching the team react in real time on these screens thousands of people and then at the end of this uh alice bowman uh reports to alan the pi that uh we have a healthy spacecraft uh that is outbound from pluto and you know everybody erupts and there's tears and you see alan and alice embracing on screen, you know, that the P, the principal investigator and the and the uh, mission operations manager, you know, basically say, oh, we did it. We flew across the solar system together. We explored Pluto and they're hugging and everybody's cheering. And then the, then the science team comes into the auditorium and everybody, you know, it's like, uh, you know, the conquering heroes <laughs> returning. And, uh, you know, it's just tremendously uh, emotional. And, and after all the anxiety, there was this group collective ecstasy, you know, of of success and, and triumph. And then and then the pictures start coming in and everybody's just completely mesmerized by this this whole world being revealed. You know, there's there's really nothing like it. What were some of the, you know, I'm sure you're still analyzing the data and, and so forth, but are, have there any, have there been any like major surprising findings that you feel, you know, really just have blown your mind? Literally everything. <laughs> <laughs> Can you be more specific? <laughs> Pick two. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you know, I was often asked this this um, this question, which is a stock question uh, before the flyby. Will New Horizons rewrite the textbooks about Pluto? And I, I used to answer, not at all. We're going to write them from scratch because we don't know anything. There's no textbook to rewrite. And then uh, uh, we found that this this planet and its system of moons was so full of surprises. And I think that, that probably the headliners are that... Um, that Pluto is, despite being only the size, you know, the surface area of the United States, it's, a, it's basically a continent-sized planet. Uh, it's as complex as worlds like Mars and the Earth. And it's, it has this range of phenomenology uh, that's the whole package from uh, atmosphere to flowing glaciers to towering mountains to ice volcanoes to an ocean under its surface to five distinctly different satellites and a double planet and and some areas on the planet are as as old as the solar system and others are as young as yesterday geologically uh, and we saw evidence of avalanches we saw evidence of uh, frozen lakes and mountain valleys it it was just uh, at one point I said in a science team meeting, let's rename Pluto to Sophie. That's an acronym. It stands for something for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so now New Horizons is is gone, right? Where is it? Well, it's not gone <laughs> and it's not forgotten. It's, uh, it, you know, it, it's it successfully explored Pluto, but it's still exploring and it's on its way out through the Kuiper Belt, this third zone of the solar system that was discovered in the 1990s when Alan and his crew were trying to get a Pluto mission and and learned that it wasn't just a Pluto mission anymore. It was the idea was to explore Pluto and the Kuiper Belt. And it is now on its way out and it's actually heading towards another object. It's gonna intercept um, this object that is nicknamed Ultima Thule, which means 
beyond the farthest frontier. It's a, it's a Norse term. On New Year's Eve, 2018-2019, um, it's going to have this next encounter with this object we don't really know that much about. We know it's uh, small and has a funny shape um, and um, is going to be by far the farthest thing that any human craft has explored. And it's one of these small objects in the Kuiper Belt that is probably a leftover building block from forming the planets. Um, but it's really, you know, exploring the unknown. We don't know that much about it, which is what's great. And um, then after that, New Horizons will keep going. Maybe um, they'll be able to encounter further objects after Ultima Thule. We don't know yet. It depends on if, you know, they find one that New Horizons can reach. But either way, it's going to keep uh, exploring um, the, the space out there and taking measurements of what the dust and the, uh, the magnetic fields or what, you know, whatever can be observed. And um, ultimately, New Horizons will escape the solar system and keep wandering the galaxy forever. It will be only the fifth human spacecraft to um, be launched with enough speed so that it will entirely escape the sun's gravity and will wander among the stars forever and will outlast you know, everything else human and it outlasts the sun and the earth. And, you know, it's another little piece of our remnant, a relic of our civilization that we know is going to last forever. So that's another kind of cool thing about New Horizons. And um, Yeah, I mean, talk about legacy, right? Something yeah. that you built is going to outlast humanity. You know, I remember <laughs> one night when we were completing the construction of New Horizons and uh, there were a lot of late nights and there was one night where I was in the clean room in a bunny suit and a lot of people buzzing around the spacecraft. And then one by one, they were wrapping up and finishing up and it gets to be nine or 10 o'clock at night. And I'm the only one in the room and I'm looking at that spacecraft and I'm thinking, if, if we do our job right, this will outlive the earth because the sun will go red giant and the earth will, will be a cinder. Uh, it'll be gone. It'll be vaporized. And this spacecraft will be somewhere else in the galaxy. And I'm, you know, I thought it was a cliche to think about outliving civilization, but it's a reality that it will outlive our planet, literally. And uh, at the end of the book, uh, we have uh, a final bit that's a little bit reflective. And something that we on the New Horizons team never realized was the, and never anticipated, I should say, was the impact that, that the exploration of Pluto made on young people. Uh, uh, interesting people in STEM careers, uh, some kids that uh, were poor students that were so enthralled that wanted to be a part of that, that they became straight A students and their parents would report, you know, literally, you saved my son's life. And they would put it that way. Uh, uh, this was completely unanticipated. And moreover, I put it above the the exploration and scientific success that we achieved, uh, that we affected real people's lives in a way that, through inspiration, essentially, by demonstrating that you could be a part of something larger than life just by being a mechanical engineer or an electrical engineer or a scientist, uh, uh, and, and be a part of something that, it's almost like something out of a, a science fiction novel, but it's real. It was global, too, the impact. One really cool thing about this encounter happening in the 21st century as opposed to earlier first flybys was that it happened in the age of the Internet. And the news and the, and the reaction and the conversation about it spread instantaneously around the world. 
And uh, we've heard, just, just on this book tour, Alan and I have been on, we've heard from some people, you know, this guy who was the, uh, started the Astronomical Society of Guiana and told us that during the encounter, he, he and his friends were there watching the images come in there in their home country. And we met this other guy that was, uh, told us that during the, the uh, flyby of New Horizons, he was in a bunker in Kabul. Um, hitting refresh on his old computer and trying to watch that you know the next image come in so this you know sense that it was a global event that affected so many people's lives keep keeps getting reinforced by the stories that we hear so i think that's a good moment to end on um so alan and david thank you for being on inquiring minds thanks a lot for having us yeah absolutely that was great So I love the story of, of New Horizons, partially because it's something that occurred like in my recent lifetime. And so I remember it being launched. I remember it getting to its target. I remember so many of my uh, astronomer friends like rejoicing at the quality of scientific data they're coming back with, the, the way it just even captivated social media. Uh, but there's a way like the story that they're telling makes it feel incredibly special, like they hit the bullseye. Oh, yeah. Like even, you know, even Alan Stern was like there. This was beyond our expectations. This was like the perfect shot. Right. You know, imagine that like final buzzer, Hail Mary, you know, <laughs> basketball shot. And it just n it, nothing but net. So that's the thing with those buzzer beater shots. Most of them miss. Yes. <laughs> and so like, are we lionizing like the idea of these successes at the detriment of what the data really says is that most of the time we don't get it right like this. You know, it, it's funny. It's funny that you mentioned that because I feel like there there were a lot of points in the journey where things failed and, and the story definitely highlights all of those. And then ultimately you end up with this big success. And to me, I see it less as like, okay, it was one shot. It was a moonshot. And then we got there. Uh, and more like we persevered despite all of these setbacks, despite all of these obstacles, we kept trying, we kept, you know, working on it. Like even, even in those last moments when they lost contact with, with the spacecraft, I mean, everybody dropped everything four days, you know, in order to solve this problem. And it could easily not have worked. And they, I think they make that very clear uh, in the story. But it did work. And it worked because people worked really hard. And, you know, maybe there was some luck involved. But I think, you know, ultimately, to me, the story is not like, you know, hey, you know, we did something and it worked. It was like, hey, everything went wrong and we fixed it. So as discussions ramp up uh, about sending more things to Mars, sending uh, new missions to Europa, uh, and just sending more missions in general, whether it's, you know, private companies like SpaceX or NASA or ESA or or whoever. Do you think there's lessons in this perseverance story that they're trying to tell for what we should be expecting out yeah. of these future missions? Yeah. And I think the other thing that I liked about it is that this goes beyond who's in the White House, uh, which I think is, you know, with a governmental organization, that's always a consideration. And to me, it just seemed like, you know, it, it didn't matter to them. They just knew they would continue making their case. Uh, and so, you know, yeah, it's this kind of like time scale that that is 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 much longer than a lot of scientific experiments than, a, you know, than a lot of governmental organizations and, and initiatives. Um, and I think that's something that we need to keep in mind that, you know, these kinds of uh, successes only come after many decades of work, uh, not just a summer spent, you know, in Houston. 
So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Kyle Raihala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And for five bucks a month, you get an ad-free version of our show plus all kinds of other special extras. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your own pictures of Pluto or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. Whose name, by the way, is spelled R-H-I-A-N-S-H-E-E-H-A-N. RianSheehan.com is where you can find him. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Geesh. See you next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America.